0: Welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast. Helping you earn the mug that says world's greatest dad. My name is Jeff Gervitz. I am your host. I am a fellow dad. And I am all that is man. Or none of it. I guess it depends on who you ask. Let's not talk about men though. Let's talk about teenagers and particularly the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Because I watched the most recent movie with my son. And according to him it was a seven. But please bear in mind that His rating scale only goes up to seven. So what I'm trying to tell you is that we both loved it and would recommend it. And for me, it was the closest to capturing the energy that I felt from the original comics and movies, which includes, by the way, some good old-fashioned, awkward teenage boy energy. We can't go back in time, however, and it's not just that the costumes from the 1990 original that don't hold up. Even more recent stuff can be a challenge. My son and I were still on a turtle's high. So the other night I put on the next most recent turtle movie. And then I found myself in an uncomfortable position because intrepid reporter April O'Neil, for some reason has to do a cheesecake strut in a plaid schoolgirl skirt. And that included the full music video treatment. And this was for her to gather data for a piece she's working on because mm, journalism. I felt like I'd messed up. My son was there because it didn't even occur to me to vet the movie, given that it's just from 2016. But really, it feels like more than 20 years of difference. There are movies from the 80s that have, quite frankly, aged better. So it was kind of an icky, gratuitous feeling, and I did my best to correct it in the moment. But it's a reminder about how much of our culture is consumed passively, not as in-your-face directives, but as stuff that's casually dropped into a movie or conversation, culture is ultimately what is tolerated. And what we tolerate as individuals, it differs. And that brings me to the internet. There is a phenomenon out there in the online world where guys and some women want to tell you exactly what is or isn't a man. Alpha males and sigma males and ram a ding dong males in An absolutely uncanny coincidence, the vast majority of guys who talk about these hierarchies just so happen to rank themselves at the top of the same hierarchies. What are the odds? Manly men have access to money and women and muscles, and they drive sports cars and shoot guns and don't take any guff. And this is entirely in keeping with how I thought of manliness at the age of seven. So I was either entirely right and on the money as a child, or there's something else going on, and masculinity is more complex and nuanced than a cartoon or a TikTok rant will allow for. In my experience, there are a lot of men, and I mean the grown up kind, who are out there and working very hard not to do the wrong thing. But the problem is that they're not entirely sure about what the right thing is, and the instructions don't seem to be that clear. This becomes an uncomfortable space to inhabit. So how do we move forward from here? It's no surprise that a lot of young men have questions. Unfortunately, a lot of the guys stepping in to fill the void are full of contempt, if not outright hatred, for other people. When I read through online comments, most of their defenders don't exactly agree with their more hateful stuff, but instead defend them because of the positive things that they've said, that young men should work hard and they should believe in themselves. They should exercise and eat well and find success. So is there a place to get those kinds of affirmations without all the baggage? I can tell you about one of them. Alex Manley is a senior editor at Ask Men. Alex is a thinker, a writer, and the author of The New Masculinity, a roadmap for a 21st century definition of manhood. Let me read something to you from the publisher's website. Having written and edited for a men's website for seven and a half years, Manly has seen up close how angry, scared, and lonely men are, and how entrenched in a culture war they feel. This book is a guide for unlearning the habits that perpetuate that harm. There are an infinite number of ways to be a person, But to access them fully, men first need to unlearn the restrictions of modern gender roles and the ways society has taught them to shave parts of themselves off until their masculinity comes before their humanity. Manly. It seems kind of inevitable that someone with that name would write a book on masculinity, but it is maybe not what you would expect. It is more about unlearning. Uh, It is about unlearning the rules that are woven into our culture and assumed to be true until we really examine them. And this book's more directed toward young men, their audience at Ask Men. But if you're a dad to a teenage boy, or you will be, I think you'll want to sit in on this conversation. Before we get going, I want to say a word from our sponsor, which is me. I am in many ways still figuring out what dad strength is, but I can tell you what it does right now. We've got weekly calls where you can jump onto Zoom with other dads who care about living, working, and parenting with intention. You can follow along. I publish a weekly newsletter that shares some of the key insights from our conversations along with updates about in-person events, including retreats. We've got one coming up this weekend, as a matter of fact. And you can support the show just by buying stuff through the affiliate links in our collection page, some of my favorite stuff. And it's all there on dadstrength.com. Now for my interview with Alex Manley. Let's get into it. Why is there no International Men's Day, Alex? (laughs) Yeah, I mean,
1: it's tough. I think about stuff like that. The value of seeing men as people and as fragile and as vulnerable and as victims, I think, So much of the past few years has been about kind of recognizing the ways that men hurt women uh, that we've been kind of keeping a lid on in our culture for a long time. And so it's very understandable to me that the kind of dominant narrative right now is, at least in many circles, certainly the ones that I travel in, is about feminism. And so it's an interesting thing to navigate Sort of trying to pay respect to that and the importance of that and not kind of be too what bounty, but also to recognize that, you know, men are people too. And despite increased likelihood that they'll be causing hurt or harm or being violent or being, you know, criminals or whatever, <laughs> there is humanity in every man and you know, building a culture that honors the humanity of men and a culture where something like an international men's day would make sense and not be kind of farcical or, I don't know, ridiculous is an interesting idea. It's like, you know, like I, I feel like in a kind of gender nirvana kind of world, there would be something like that where men could get together and celebrate healthy masculinity and, you know, wish each other happy men's day in a kind of loving and supportive way, uh, the way sort of women wish each other Happy Women's Day. I don't think we're there yet, culturally speaking, and I don't know how long uh, it might take to get there, but as a thought experiment, it is interesting.
0: Yeah, it's a good question to ask. So I would love for you to talk about uh, your experience at Ask Men and how the kind of conversations you took part in and the questions you answered or were privy to informed your whole perspective on this stuff.
1: So I started working for AskMen in 2013. I I was hired as a copy editor, which is a position that has not existed pretty much anywhere in media for six or seven years. I feel like as the copy editor, I mean, your job is to read everything basically that the, the publication puts out. So in addition to being an employee, you're also like the biggest fan <laughs> kind of. So I feel like I was sort of speed running uh, a masculinity education or at least like a masculinity publishing education in terms of seeing what was considered stereotypically masculine uh, enough to make it like in a men's lifestyle publication uh, that the viewpoints and the subjects and whatnot, which I think was a fascinating way to cut one's teeth, I guess, because this was my first job out of college, my first interview out of college, my first desk job, and since has, has represented basically the entirety of my professional career, which is pretty freaking rare, and I think speaks in part to the fact that Unlike most media outlets, which are typically founded in like New York, Ask Men is a Montreal operation. The big thing that it really helped me see was just like the kind of anxieties that exist for a lot of men. You know, I think like when we talk about masculinity, so often it's a conversation about like machismo and bravery and courage and braggadocio and all that kind of stuff, like these stereotypical attributes that men are supposed to possess and encouraged to possess and encouraged to fake if they do not possess. And working for a company like Men was just kind of like this insight into the fact that guys don't know stuff. Like they're not born knowing stuff about masculinity. They're not born knowing stuff about how to be a person. And the kind of role of a website like Men or any men's publication is to kind of help them uh, deal with those things that they're anxious about, answer the questions that they don't feel like they can ask people in their lives. And uh, one of the founders who was kind of running the show when I first came on basically said as much in like internal meetings, it was like, we are a replacement for the dad that some of our readers don't have or can't speak to about this kind of stuff. You know, like we are providing the man education that they're not getting elsewhere. And they come to us, you know, because they're worried about not knowing how to do things right or not, you know, fitting in properly in in manly circles or with their guy friends or, or, you know, at work or that kind of stuff. And just sort of recognizing that there is that anxiety for so many guys about sort of how to be a guy and how to be, you know, good at being a guy that was really eye opening, I think. And, and not in a way that I necessarily even recognized at the time, but in a way that just kind of shaped my perspective of all this stuff. And I was like, it's easy to not perceive that, I think, if you're not a guy <laughs> or you don't have experience being kind of socialized male. Like, you kind of look at how guys present themselves and you're like, oh, like there's so much confidence and they're so, I don't know, tough and that kind of stuff. And it's like, every single tough guy has something that he's very insecure about, if not many things and recognizing that and recognizing that, you know, to be insecure and to be anxious and to be, to be ignorant, I guess, and to not know things is a kind of core part of being a human, (laughs) you know, that all of us are born as fragile, (laughs) feeble little babies and, and, it's only with our parents and everyone else's help that we be we become people, you know, like it takes a village to raise a child, you know, like human existence is interaction. It is being in community with people. So I think so much of the kind of masculinity myth that we have is like men are self-made and they're tough and they're doing it alone. And their true strength is not depending on anyone or relying on anyone. And I guess a lot of what the book is trying to do is blow that up a little bit and say like, that might make for a good Marlboro commercial, but like that's not based in reality in any meaningful way.
0: Yeah. And even the people that we see who are conspicuous, maybe on social media and in popular culture who are kind of selling the story of a a lone wolf, have a whole care team quietly working behind the scenes, cooking their meals, bring them water.
1: Mm. And like to be, famous on social media is to derive your power from other people. You know, like you're only famous on social media if other people are giving you that fame. Sure. You are nothing without your audience. So, you know, like the very concept of, of being like a, a lone wolf social media influencer or whatever is like complete nonsense. You know, if all those people change their minds about you, you would instantly be nobody. So part of what I'm trying to do with this book, yeah, is is to make the case for people who have grown up hearing about the lone wolf concept, which is a lot of people, people of all genders. It probably finds root more easily in men and people who are socialized male. But like, I know women who really subscribe to that as well and who think like, oh, I need to be kind of tough and go it alone and whatnot. So like, just kind of pushing back against that and, and making the case for just a kind of more connected uh, way of living.
0: Yeah, I know my success and well-being in life have correlated pretty closely to my willingness to reach out to ask for help to ask for support. So, based on your experience, you know, how would you describe? the larger dialogue around masculinity from an outside perspective, maybe if we zoom out to another culture, even to an alien civilization watching us from afar, like what what is the discussion that's happening right now?
1: I think it might have been in 2017 doing like a bigger kind of editorial project at Ask Men. I cooked up the idea that we should interview a bunch of guys on staff and just guys I knew about like masculinity and men. One of the most interesting findings I had was that like, the trans guy who I interviewed was a lot more eloquent about what he thought was cool about being a guy than any of the cis guys I talked to, <laughs> which makes sense, I think, because it's like, if you're a trans person, you had to kind of fight tooth and nail to to become the gender that you want to be. Whereas like, if you're cis, you're just kind of, it's there and you're in it. And it's, you know, kind of handed to you on a platter when you're born. But it was really just fascinating asking like, you know, guys, like, what do you like about being a guy? And they were just kind of like, uh, uh, (laughs) you know, and I was like, Oh, man, like, it's true. That's kind of an unexpected question that feels like you should be able to answer it. But also, like, if you're a cis guy, you're just kind of not thinking about that. You're just kind of doing it, I guess, and not necessarily verbalizing or thinking through like, how it is meaningful to you. Mm. Anyway, the reason I bring up this kind of series of video interviews is because one of the questions that I put was like, where do you see masculinity going like five, 10 years from now? And I remember my own answer to the question that I came up with, (laughs) though I hadn't thought about it before, like the moment that I had it posed to me on camera. But I was like, I think we're going to see it split a little bit. I think we're going to see a lot of like the continued push towards a healthy masculinity. I think we're going to see a lot of really cool stuff happen in masculinity where a lot of guys sort of start to divest themselves of some of the toxic baggage that they were brought up with. And we're going to get a lot of really thoughtful, healthy guys, great dads, supportive partners, you know, good friends, stuff that was kind of much more rare and and whatnot in the 20th century. And I think, in response to that, there's going to be an absolute pull to to like a regressive mode. There's going to be people who see that happening and go, holy crap, that's the worst thing in the world. I'm going to double down on being awful as a result. And I feel like that's sort of what we're seeing. This kind of doubling down yeah, on, on toxicity, I think with people like Andrew Tate or Jordan Peterson, where it's like, let's go right back to the 1950s. Let's go even earlier. Let's go to into the future to a place that didn't even exist in the past. You know, like, let's come up with levels of regressiveness that have no bearing in anything, you know, that aren't like traditional or whatever that are just like, science fiction, (laughs) level apocalyptic, terrible. And then you have like a lot of guys who are the opposite of that and who are getting in touch with their feelings and who are working on being healthier people and loving people and invested supportive members of their communities. It feels like a sort of ideological schism (laughs) within greater masculinity. I'm just hopeful that the bad side doesn't win, I
0: guess. (laughs) Okay, so this is a great segue for a term you introduce or that was certainly uh, newer to me, and that is Schismogenesis. Can you talk about that? Yes. It's a fancy word.
1: It is. It's not one that I use in conversation, but it was on my mind a bunch as I was writing the book. I got it from a book called The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber. And I believe David Wengro is the co-author. Schismogenesis basically just describes like the process of creating your sort of values as a rejection of someone else's values. And, you know, as Canadians, we recognize a little bit of that because a fair amount of Canadian identity is just us being like, we are slightly better than Americans, you know? And any Canadian who, who denies that, I think, is lying. <laughs> so basically, the idea just being that that, that is not unique to the Canadian American border, you know, that that is a kind of facet of human existence that has been around for as long as there have been humans in groups um, that is normal on some level to look at a different group of people or a group that you see yourself as being differentiated from and kind of create who you are in opposition to who you perceive uh, them to be. And in, in the book, basically I argue like, that's sort of what's going on with gender, that a lot of contemporary masculinity is just a form of schismogenesis. It's just guys looking at what feminism or what femininity is and saying like, okay, we're gonna do the opposite. And I think, you know, to some degree, if it's a kind of natural aspect of human existence, there's not necessarily anything wrong with it. But it's also a force that becomes very problematic quite easily because it can feed into, especially in the context of unequal power dynamics, it can feed into violence and hatred and, you know, worst case scenario, I guess, genocide. And so I think it's important to think about to what degree is sort of the creation of masculinity as something specifically in opposition to femininity, you know, maybe a neutral thing? And to what degree is it potentially harmful both to men and women and and anyone else on the gender spectrum? And I think the fascinating thing for me is that in the context of the gains that women have made through feminism in the past hundred years, Uh, defining your culture in opposition to another culture that is shifting and gaining a bit more of a foothold in society means that you are sort of necessarily losing. If there was something that women used to not do and you did, and then women start doing it, you kind of need to stop doing it. And so it's sort of like you're not making your own choice there. You're kind of letting someone else's shift dictate your own. And for a culture like sort of contemporary Western masculinity, that's all like, oh, we're tough or whatever. I'm like, okay, how tough is it to stop doing something because someone else started doing it? And you're like, you know, it feels very like two kids fighting in the back of a car or something, you know, more than like a coherent way to frame a notion of, of your gender.
0: Yeah, it's a sort of oppositional defiance. And, you know, you point out in the book that whether it's a, a job role An identity. I even think about how a lot of names that were classically men's names, uh, Marion and Kelly and Vivian's a good one. These were all guys' names. And when people started naming their daughters, well, I guess parents in this case, said, "We, we can't do it. Right. Can't be done.
1: It is fascinating to think about gender neutral names because we live in a society where there are relatively few of them. And it can almost be seen as like a faux pas to name your kid something that's not clearly gendered. It's like, oh, dude, you named your boy like kind of a feminine name. Like, don't you think he's going to get bullied? Like,
0: I don't know. Are you going to raise your kid to bully him? <sighs> Ugh. It gets a little messy, but I think, you know, what you're really pointing to is a relinquishing of control, even though that's so, so much part of traditional identity. A lot of masculinity is defined, you know, by what women don't do. Honestly, you know, I wasn't expecting this, but the part of your book that I, I felt the most sort of emotionally affected by was when you pointed out that it is really women's jobs or or where we see a greater representation of women in a in a professional role that is going to be more resilient against automation mm. because these are things that involve you know maybe care. <laughs> expression of emotion, um, you know, uh, emotional labor mm. that men have drifted away from. But these are the things that are going to be the most easily automated in the future, uh-huh. even in the in the present.
1: Yeah, certainly like the idea of the kind of masculine job that's only really doable by men because they have like a certain percentage more muscle mass on average than women. That is something that is very vulnerable, not now, but even, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, <laughs> you know, vulnerable to being mechanized out of existence, basically, you know, like being a copy editor. It's just like all these kind of traditionally masculine jobs that functionally don't exist anymore because someone somewhere developed a robot to do it better and faster.
0: Which should be liberating.
1: (laughs) I mean, if we lived in a society where there was a universal basic income or some kind of basic safety net to prevent people from instantly becoming homeless or whatever, if they didn't have a steady job than it would be, I think, but we don't, <laughs> at least not yet. And so it's considered much better to be like toiling for your whole life and missing out on moments at home and, and missing out on, I don't know, adventures across the world or whatever, and just kind of clocking into the factory every
0: day. Where you, you might be rewarded or incentivized for being disconnected. What is the cost of of gas station readiness? Maybe I'll get you to unpack this phrase. Like what is the cost of gas station readiness and and hypervigilance? Yeah. That's
1: tough. It's a risk reward thing, you know? And I think I, I worry about that sometimes as someone who preaches basically that gas station readiness is a bad idea. I also know that like there's people for whom having that has saved their lives, you know, who would look at me saying, I think this is a bad thing overall and go like, you're crazy, Alex. I recognize that. It's not like you can just kind of flip a switch, one, and two, like the conditions that provoke it are not going away anytime soon. But I do think it's important to think about the ways that it's harmful. I don't know. I mean, look, like I I used to work at a convenience store. Functionally, what it was supposed to do was sell magazines, but magazines are an incredibly difficult way to make money for anyone involved in the magazine process. So they sold a lot of other stuff that wasn't magazines uh, with much higher profit margins. And one of those things was knives it's on a busy street downtown in Montreal. And I guess there was a market for that. And I was like, cool, like kind of cool, like a knife. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so with my employee discount, I bought one of the knives and I started carrying it around with me after like a week or two, I was like, I'm just thinking about my knife constantly when I'm out now, you know, Mm. (laughs) it became a lens through which I viewed the world. And I was like, I don't think this is making me safer. I think this is making me a much more anxious and much more jumpy and B if anything does go down. I don't fucking know how to use a knife, you know, as my boss basically said, he was like, if you don't know how to use a knife, like having a knife on your person puts you in a lot more danger because then there's, then there's something that can be used to hurt you that you may not have control of for very long um, in any kind of real situation.
0: Or you've dramatically escalated the, the state. Right.
1: Exactly. You've given the other person reason to fear for their safety enough to really take the gloves off or whatever. And so I stopped carrying the knife around and my life improved. And I think that functions as a kind of very straightforward metaphor for the kind of gas station readiness mentality, which is like, it's possible, I'll grant, that having that kind of mentality can lead to you saving your life or saving someone else's life should circumstances arise or whatever someday. But it's like, it's not possible. It's, Basically, like certain that having that kind of mentality and bringing that kind of mentality into your day to day life is going to make your life worse, you know, A, because either you'll be perceiving threats or perceiving situations where there aren't any and B, because you'll just be kind of on high alert unnecessarily a whole lot of the time.
0: Yeah, just I, I imagine you in sort of a, a Terminator mode, walking around Montreal, sorting things into stabbable and non-stabbable buckets.
1: <laughs> exactly, the little knife sort of computer app that I just kind of added to to my brain software, <laughs> filtering everything I saw. You know, like I mean, it wasn't it wasn't that egregious, but it it just sort of like I think there's this fear that guys have of ever being vulnerable, you know, and so they're like, if I make myself super tough and super gas station ready then I can be prepared for anything at all times. And it's like, yeah, I guess you could turn yourself into the security guard of your own life, but there's a cost to that. You know, a security guard's job is not fun. They just have to be kind of constantly on some level of high alert. Your stress levels are probably high all the time. Like, Like, that's not fun, you know? I think you genuinely are in a better place just kind of accepting. Like, I might be in a bad situation someday, you know? Like, I can't control that. That's life. It's anathema to a lot of contemporary masculinities thinking, but it's like you also open yourself up to <laughs> being delighted and being just chill and, and Yeah. I don't know, like different kinds of interactions with other people if you're not sort of thinking about them from a threat perspective. And that's a trade-off that I have made and I don't think I've ever really regretted or like not to say that I don't have that kind of thinking, you know, I still do kind of do the, uh, I don't know if you're an it's always sunny in Philadelphia person, but like the kind of ocular pat down threat level assessment or whatever <laughs> that I think like anyone who kind of grows up as a guy like.
0: Yeah. Situational awareness will, will take you a long way.
1: Right. Exactly. Trying not to lean into that fear and that tension or whatever and trying to kind of accept like, yeah, there's there's times where I'm not going to necessarily be the toughest person in the room. In my case, that's Basically all the time, but that doesn't mean that you can't be fine because instances of physical violence with strangers are actually incredibly rare uh, despite what the conservative news media might want you to believe
0: Yeah I don't think if we were gonna shoot my life in a cinematic style I don't I don't feel like I want a, a gun or a knife to play a you know the role of the main character right where everything is sort of positioned or structured around that. I want to shift gears a little bit here. You talk about sort of a mask of masculinity. And I mean, more than what it is, like, how do we take that mask off? Easier
1: said than done for starters. I think some of it starts at home. I mean, a lot of it, I I would say, Uh, or if not like at home directly, then when kids are young, I think like the vision of masculinity that your parents or your parental figures impart to you is a, is of huge importance in determining how you see gender and how you see the world going forward, um, which is, you know, not very surprising. Like the, the things we pick up from our parents ideologically, especially on sort of issues that feel so kind of core to human personhood like gender is. I feel really blessed in that neither of my parents really subscribed very strongly to hyper-traditional gender roles. And that allowed me to be a little bit more free with how I approached gender. And the other thing, and this is a tricky kind of balancing act to pull off, but is to let, you know, kids know, A, that those kind of traditional old school modes of thinking of masculinity do still exist. And there are times where buying into them may be necessary or may be advantageous, but that's not the only way to be. That's not a birthright that like you have to conform to just because of the genitals you had when you came out of the womb and that you can be on your kid's team and kind of be like, look, you and I know, that what the rest of the world believes is bogus often but at home between us or wherever you're with people you trust you don't have to put on that mask and you can if you want to out there if you need it when you need it because to some degree like gender is uh, performance gender is a form of drag you know it's it's learned behavior it's uh, putting on a show for the rest of the world and so like femininity can be a mask too from that perspective. So it's more just like recognizing that performing in a certain gendered way can be a part of your toolkit as opposed to like, this is your life and this is like the kind of cage in which you live your life.
0: I know you're not a dad, but you've spoken with and thought enough about young men. You know, I'd be curious to hear, what advice do you have for dads when it comes to uh, in particular raising boys and young men
1: it's so important to make them feel loved which is hard i think especially in a culture that is very creeped out by men loving other men you know yeah <laughs> like it's hard to even say that without some people getting jumpy you know but it's like a father loving his son is a man <laughs> loving a man or, or a man loving a boy depending on how old he is we, yeah, we just live in a culture that is so panicky about men being vulnerable with each other, about men being real and tender and caring with each other. You know, like there's like pictures of Tom Brady, like kissing his son and people were like, wow, that's fucked up, you know? And it's like, (laughs) are we serious now? Like, you know, like kissing is so, is, is such a fundamental way to show affection, like throughout human history. And the fact that we've culturally gotten to a point where you can be someone, literal parent, not to take anything away from, from, you know, adoptive parents or step parents or whatever, but like someone could be your flesh and blood who you've raised their, your, your whole life. And it's now like, Oh, don't be too affectionate with them because we have these cultural sort of iffinesses about that. You need to kind of push back against that a little bit or, or, or try to kind of remove that from your mind. And I think also it's not just sort of like the kind of maybe latent homophobia of it, but also that guys aren't sort of necessarily great historically at showing affection. It's not something we're really taught to do growing up. It's not something that is necessarily prized as a sort of masculine skill set. And so a lot of people, by the time they become dads, like have affection that they do want to show their kids and they don't kind of know exactly the best way to do it. They might feel kind of stifled or awkward or whatever in that regard. Mm-hmm. I, don't know, I wrote an article for ask men about this and, and I, I looked at it again in retrospect a while later. And I was like, I feel like I'm sort of in the article advocating for a kind of like love languages approach to, to showing affection for your kids. I don't know how familiar your listeners or you are with the love languages concept, but it's one of the f- parts of contemporary like romantic scholarship discourse that I find kind of compelling because the, you know, when I read about it, I was like, Oh yeah, I can pick out the, the love languages that mean a lot to me and I can pick out the ones that I really don't care about. You know, like I need words of affection and I need physical touch. Like if someone says they love me, but they won't hug me or they won't kiss me or like we're never sleeping together. I don't feel loved at all. But if I'm getting that physical like contact, I like I'm like yes, the love is there. I feel it. I feel great about myself. And just like the clarity of that, I was like, okay, love languages are real. All right. Yeah, it's funny. There's there's some debate. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's definitely debate about it, and I think there are valid arguments to be made against th- their existence as like, okay, like there are only these five love languages and everyone has like one or two core ones or whatever, but like, I think it is useful just in terms of recognizing that like, that some people think they're showing love to someone else. And that person is picking up none of it. And I think that's often the case in parent child relationships, you know, like parents will, I feel like it's almost stereotypical, like parents will be like, okay, like I bought you all these gifts. And the child's like, you never spent any time with me. And I'm like, that's a gift slash quality time, love language, like misunderstanding. <laughs> you know, That's like, I understand love to be gifts and I understand love to be quality time. And we are, you know, we are not translating. We are not communicating, you know, and this is very like kind of granular stuff. But like it can be a big deal in the long run. It's like try to figure out what makes your kid feel loved, whether it is being told I love you or it is spending time with them, you know, throwing the ball around or watching movies together or playing games together or whether it's like expensive gifts or, or thoughtful gifts whether it's hugging and, you know, like physical contact, like, you know, figure out what makes your kid feel loved and show them love in that manner or in those manners. And I think a lot of people don't get to the first step there. They're just like, here is how I understand love as being communicated. And I'm going to use that method. And it's like, not everyone has the same approach and you can find out decades too late that you thought you were being very loving and the person on the other end of it was like my you know dad or my parent never loved
0: me. I believe that we all parent, you know, in part as a response to the way that we were parented and often uh, as a response to the deficiencies we felt and and I think a lot of people go I felt like x was absent mm-hmm. in my childhood and so I want to make sure that that my kid gets that in spades and in reality it's something else that they feel is missing. And so on it goes. But I, I think you're so right when it comes to to showing affection. I'm going to ask you one final question. What is the difference between saying, I love you, man, and just saying, I love you?
1: <laughs> it's a great question. Uh, it is a, It is a fascinating nuance. And I get into it a little bit in the book. So, you, you know, I, I think that comes back a little bit to that, that discomfort I mentioned earlier about like men loving other men in the sense, ooh, what if it's a little bit gay? Or what if it's perceived as gay? What if the guy I'm saying I love you to thinks it's a little bit gay? What if someone else watching thinks it's a little bit gay? And it's like, first of all, none of that matters if being gay is okay. And second of all, none of that, you know, would even further matter if being a woman was not a bad thing because I think so much of homophobia is just kind of translating this distaste for women onto men who you think act a little bit too much like women, whether it's like in a fade demeanor or whether it's in the act of, you know, being romantically or sexually attracted to a man, which is sort of like what only women are supposed to do. Um, So I'm just like, okay, in a society where men don't hate women, men also don't hate gay guys. And, You, there would be no reason to kind of couch uh, a phrase like I love you with a kind of more masculine modifier to make it sound uh, tougher or whatever or to kind of clarify like, hey, I don't love you in a like. Love you, brother. Right. (laughs) Just get your voice as deep as humanly possible. Smoke cigarettes for 20 years and then come back and tell the person you love them. God, <laughs> yeah, that's the, the kind of classic story where dad goes uh, out. I got
0: to go chop down trees. Right,
1: exactly. The classic story where dad says like, he's going to go get a pack of cigarettes and never comes back. He's just like chain smoking for 20 years so he can say I love you in a in a way that won't be taken the wrong way. Yeah, it's a very small and impossibly meaningless difference. And I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying I love you, man. You know, like, But I think where it becomes tricky is when it represents the fact that you can't just say I love you because then you're living your life in fear of like made up crap, (laughs) which in fairness, like there are some guys who would respond to being told I love you without man or without some kind of joking, you know, modifier or or way to make it not gay. And they would get a little icked. They would be like, Oh, does he love, you know, like, and it's like, first, first of all, we can't let that kind of bad thinking hold us back um, as a society. (laughs) Uh, And second of all, like, you know god I, I I just wish for any situation where a man loves another man platonically and wants to express that 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 guy is able to hear that and cherish it and feel holy crap, that's so nice without the shallowness of this kind of like latent homophobia and misogyny that underlies the idea that a man should not love another man because and let me tell you like the past decade or so women have gotten real good at loving each other platonically and saying like my female friends are the foundation of my happiness. You know, if you pay any attention to feminine culture, which lots of guys don't, but you know, then, you know, that female friendship discourse has shifted significantly and the primacy you know now, now it's to a point where women are like my friends are my number one and th- the guys that i'm dating are like a distant second maybe a third after my pets you know like it, on the whole i think female friendship culture has enriched the lives of so many women in you know contemporary society like as it's become cool and important to recognize the value of the people you spend all your time with and talk to all the time and i'm like Guys have so much to gain from getting to a point where they can just say, I love you without adding the man, whether it's literally adding the word man or whether it's coaching it somehow or that kind of stuff. The benefits of having people in your life that you love uh, and who love you are immeasurable. That's the only reason to be a person pretty much is is to love and be loved, not romantically necessarily, but to bring joy to the faces of other people and to experience joy when you see other people. We are a social species. We are social beings. People go crazy when they are ignored and ostracized and cast out or whatever, like because it's so fundamental to being a person to be in touch with other people. And that, I think, is a great space of potential growth in contemporary masculinity is guys getting better, working on the skill set of loving and being loved and being in community.
0: Well said. Yeah, we uh, we move forward maybe even in, in that expression of uh, affection or love in a way that I guess recognizes another person's safety, you know, whatever we might think about that and kind of, uh, you know, inch this this conversation forward. Alex, thanks so much for taking the time. How can people... Find you, support you, learn more.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, It was a pleasure. I'm Alex Manley. I'm the senior editor at askmen.com. You can find me at alexmanley.com. That's L-E-Y at the end. And on social media at alex underscore icon on Twitter and Instagram. I have a new book out called The New Masculinity, a 21st Century Roadmap. Or sorry, (laughs) I just woke up from a nap, as I said earlier. Uh, a roadmap. For
0: take, it, take it from the top.
1: Right, exactly. A roadmap for a 21st century definition of manhood. In fairness to me, we we came up with that subtitle relatively late in the process. It wasn't the original subtitle. And so I still screw it up sometimes. But anyway, a book is more than its subtitle. The original subtitle was 13 Old School Man Rules It's Time to Start Breaking, um, which I still feel an attachment to. But. That's neither here nor there. That basically lays out what the book is, which is just sort of like looking at these different old school perceptions of masculinity that tell guys what not to do. And for each of these things, I wrote a chapter saying, maybe if you tried doing this, your life would actually be better. You would be better off and the people you know and love and spend time with would be better off because of it. Honestly, the best reviews that I've gotten, apart from people saying that like, it's cool, are that it's very easy to read and it's surprisingly funny. And I was even compared to David Sedaris, which completely caught me off guard because I was not writing it intentionally as a funny book, but apparently just kind of being a little bit funny is just so deeply ingrained into my writing style by now that it's a part of the book, so. pretty high praise. Hopefully that sounds worth checking out.
0: Such a great conversation with someone who has one of the best lenses really on what young men are going through alex has the research chop so he certainly knows the academic side of things schismogenesis am i right but it's his positioning at ask men that really illuminates for him what's going on in the hearts and minds of young men he's pretty damn close to a google search when it comes to hearing what is going on in their lives and what questions they want the answers to. And that has informed his work in some really important ways. You can find his book, The New Masculinity, a roadmap for a 21st century definition of manhood at thoughtful bookstores like Type Books here in Toronto, or you can order it from ECW Press. Thank you for hanging out with us today. Special thanks to Alex Manley for moving the needle forward for young men. Wish me luck on our first Dad Strength Retreat And follow this podcast for more dad strength. See you next time.